Good morning and welcome. We are returning to our study this morning of Paul's letter to the Romans, picking up with verse 16 of chapter 10, working through to the end of that chapter, which is verse 21. Uh, For those of you who have not been here for this series, uh, let me give you a quick word about the letter as a whole. Uh, I like to do this every so often, just to remind people uh, where we've come from, and then say just a little bit about the immediate context of the verses upon which we're focusing before we dive in. And just to say also, we've got it printed in your bulletin, those verses, if you want to follow along there. I always would encourage you to bring a Bible if you've got one and uh, follow along in your own Bible. I think in the long run, that's probably a better way to go for us all. Well, first of all, what is this letter to the Romans uh, all about? The short answer is this. Uh, The letter before us, I believe, functions, this letter functions like a theological resume sent to the Roman Christians by the Apostle Paul. Why is he sending them a letter such as this? Now, we don't really have an explicit uh, statement from Paul as to why he's doing that, uh, which makes anything I say at this point somewhat tentative. I know that. Nevertheless, when we uh, engage in an informed reconstruction of the available information, uh, it makes sense, I think, to say that Paul's likely motive in this letter was to enlist the trust and the support of the church in Rome. Why might Paul want the support and confidence of the Roman church? I think the reason uh, he might is because Paul is a missionary, and up till now he had been working in the the eastern regions of the then-known world, places like Ephesus and Philippi and Thessalonica, and things had gone pretty well there, and as a result Paul wanted to move on. He wanted to kind of come further west, and uh, Paul's missionary heart wants to expand the work of the gospel further and further, all the way to Spain, he even mentions in this letter. But if Paul is going to do that, it would make sense to move his base of operations from Antioch, which is way over here in the east, to someplace further west like Rome. And so in response to that, Paul, I believe, writes this letter by which he's seeking to show that he's a trustworthy, reliable, faithful guy, and he's seeking to communicate this to a church that with the exception of you know, a handful of people, this church doesn't know who Paul is because he didn't plant this church. But if he can gain their support, if he can win their confidence, that'll help his future missionary plans. That's what I think is basically going on in this letter. That's why it's taken the shape that it has. It's sort of a letter, sort of a the- theological statements all combined together. At any rate, after briefly uh, introducing himself at the beginning of this letter, very briefly... Paul then spends really the bulk of his time uh, introducing his gospel, his understanding of the gospel. And at the center of Paul's explanation of the gospel is this whole idea of the righteousness of God by which Paul is referring to God's means of repairing the broken relationship between himself and sinful humanity. And he does that by crediting his people with a right standing with himself. And this right standing or righteousness, is not anything they've earned, not anything they've deserved, but it is purely and solely, it is that which has been achieved and made available to them through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. To put that a little differently, Paul's gospel is centered on the extreme, radical kindness of God shown to extremely unworthy people. People like the Romans, people like you and me. So what was the response to all this? The answer is, it was a mixed response. Uh, Many people uh, embraced Paul's teaching, but not everyone did. 
and certain questions and objections arose in people's minds. Some of those questions had to do with the substance of Paul's gospel, the content of it. And you see some of those things addressed in chapter 6 and 7 of Romans. But then other questions also arose, not so much wrestling with the substance of Paul's gospel as with the surprising response that it was having amongst the Jewish people, who you would have thought uh, they would be eating this up, but that was just it. They weren't responding in a favorable way. And Paul addresses this whole matter of the surprising unresponsiveness of the Jews to their own Messiah in chapters 9 to 11 of this letter. When we started looking at chapter 9, we saw that part of the answer to this question of why Israel, for the most part, has not responded to the Lord Jesus, part of the answer to that is found in the sovereign, uh, divine outworking of God's purposes. And when we look at the pattern of God's working in the Old Testament, one of the things that we find is that God has always been in this practice of making distinctions among his own people. Choosing, for example, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau. In other words, God's promises and purposes seem to have had in view, ultimately, a subset of his people. And Israel within Israel. And so chapter 9, for the most part, locates at least part of the explanation for Israel's unresponsiveness in the sovereign actions and purposes and choices of God himself. But then from about uh, chapter 9, verse 30, through chapter 10, verse 21, which we're going to today, we've, uh, we've, we've seen some of these things that we'll see again this morning. The other part of the answer to this question about the lack of responsiveness among the Jews is seen there. And whereas this previous section, chapter 9, was really emphasizing the role of God's sovereignty, uh, in 9.30 through 10.21, we're going to see the role that human responsibility has had to has played in everything that's taken place. So, for example, 9.30 to 33 is talking about how the Gentiles, who the, right, the non-Jewish people who did not have the law or the promises, who were not part of God's chosen people, nevertheless, they attained righteousness by faith. And yet the Jews who did have the law and the promises and were these direct descendants of Abraham, nevertheless failed to attain righteousness precisely because they pursued it in an illegitimate way, by means of law-keeping and not by faith. In essence, they trusted in themselves. And that self-trust entailed a rejection of God. And that rejection is something for which they would be held responsible. And then following that, chapter 10, 1 to 4, talks about how the Jewish people had tremendous zeal, uh, religious enthusiasm, which is not a bad thing, but their enthusiasm was not grounded in truth, which is a bad thing, and the Jews would be held responsible for that. Following that, verses 5 to 10 talk about the easy accessibility of the gospel, which then only further heightens Israel's culpability of missing out on something that is right there, a message and a truth that is right there, something that's near, that is only, as we saw, one belief away. And then verses 11 to 13 talk about how this gospel that is easily accessible is also equally accessible to Jews and Gentiles both, to all who call on the name of the Lord. And then verses 14 to 15 describe how in the providence of God, this equally and easily accessible gospel actually comes to people. Namely, by means of a sequence of events, it starts with preachers, with heralds being sent, pre people bringing in the message, which leads to it being preached, 
A message then being heard, the message is then believed, and finishes with people calling upon the name of the Lord and being saved. All of which raises the question all over again of why the Jews have not responded. In spite of all that God had done, the Jews still did not receive the gospel. Where's the problem here? Is the problem that they have not had the truth preached to them? Is that it? Paul deals with that potential excuse in verses 16 to 21, which we're going to look at. Or if they have had the truth preached to them, is the problem that they heard it, but they didn't understand it? Is that it? Well, Paul deals with that potential excuse in verses 16 to 21. Or is the problem, humanly speaking, to be found somewhere else? Paul deals with that in these verses as well. That's sort of our roadmap this morning. Let's pray before we go any further. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, please come and help your people now. Help us, please. Uh, Help us to attend to you in this moment. Help us to be attentive so that we might hear you speaking to us in and through your word. And so by that means, we might be shaped and molded and sculpted, changed, um, redirected, encouraged, rebuked, affirmed, confirmed, and anything else you want to do with your truth. Thank you for what you have done through your Son to save us. Thank you for what you are currently doing through your Spirit to change us. And please bring that good work to completion in your way and in your time. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 10, verses 16 to 21. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now before we examine these uh, two hypothetical excuses that might be given for the Jews' unresponsiveness, I just want to look for a moment at what Paul says first, just about the simple fact of the Jewish resistance to the gospel. Just the fact of that. Concentrating on what he says in verse 16. To help us do that and to give a better sense of the flow of what's being said there, it helps to move back a few verses and read them together. So I'm going to go back to verse 13 and read that with verse 16. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, 
Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? A couple things I think worth noting here. First of all, notice the interesting phrase in verse 16, where Paul talks about the fact that not all have obeyed, not obeyed the gospel. Uh, What's interesting about that, at least to me, is that it's not the language that we usually hear or use with regard to the gospel. We talk about people believing the gospel. We talk about people accepting the gospel. We talk about people embracing the gospel. But we very seldom talk about people obeying the gospel. But Paul does. And it's not just here, but in fact the same idea is found in the very opening words of this letter. Chapter 1, Paul says this, Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul can write a sentence, can he? He can write a sentence. And here's the phrase, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So right there, in the opening verses of this letter, you have this same idea. Talking about obedience and faith together. And what Paul means then when he talks about the obedience of faith in chapter 1 or obeying the gospel in chapter 10 is the simple fact that responding to the good news of Jesus Christ is not just an intellectual exercise. It's a whole life response. Heart, mind, body. It's a whole life response to what God has done for us in and through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. To be sure, we are not saved or made right with God because of our response. But our response does indicate the presence or else the absence of genuine faith and trust. Ten people might be standing on a platform contemplating taking a ride on a zip line. They might all loudly profess their confidence in the soundness of the cable, and the sturdiness of the harness, and the reliability of the engineering behind the whole thing. But it is the person who straps on the harness, grabs the bar, and takes a leap off the platform that demonstrates by that response a certain level of confidence in what they've professed. Similarly, responding to the gospel involves absolutely professing and confessing what we believe and in whom we're trusting. But that faith, that profession gets proven or demonstrated or not over time by actions and choices, by repentance, by some patterns of being and living starting to appear, although imperfectly, And other patterns of living and choosing that start to disappear also imperfectly. And all of which is to say this. When people do not respond to the gospel, they're not just expressing a difference of opinion. I mean, yes, they are expressing a difference of opinion. But the matter doesn't stop there. When people reject the gospel, they're not just being different. They're being disobedient. In other words, it's not as if there's this sort of grand cafeteria of ideas out there. And Christianity is just one of them 
But there are other equally valid options, and so it doesn't matter. It doesn't morally matter what you choose. What Paul is saying here is that it does matter. What Paul is saying is that the rejection of the gospel, not embracing the Lord Jesus Christ, is a culpable act. It's a rejection of the truth. It's a rejection of the one who stands behind the truth, or the one who embodies the truth. And that's a very sobering thought. When we present the gospel to people, we're not asking them if they want chicken salad or tuna salad. We're not asking them about something that doesn't ultimately matter. When we present them with the gospel, we are presenting them with a moral dilemma. We are confronting them with a heart issue. It's a heart issue. We're confronting them with a choice, a choice that has consequences either way they go. The gospel is not something only to be believed, it is something to be obeyed. The other thing to see here in verse 16 is the fact that the lack of responsiveness among the Jewish people is sadly not a terribly surprising thing. As we've seen all this before, but it's not surprising because of Israel's track record over the years. It's not surprising because of the words of the prophets, including the prophetic words contained in this verse, a quotation from Isaiah 53, 1. That might sound familiar to you. I hope it is familiar to some of us here. But uh, that's, that verse comes in the midst of this section of Isaiah that's generally quite well known in, in church circles. It speaks of a suffering servant. It speaks of one who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, one who would bear the transgressions of many. In other words, the passage from which Paul quotes is a clear reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question, Lord, who has believed our message, coming in the midst of this prophecy about Jesus, as one commentator says, it foreshadows the rejection of God's servant by the very people to whom he was sent. Well, after this opening comment about those who have not obeyed the gospel, most especially the Jewish people, Paul then raises and responds to the first question mentioned in the introduction. And it's this, this question, the question of whether or not the Jews have really had the truth, the gospel truth, preached to them. Because if they haven't, then perhaps they have an excuse for their unresponsiveness. Listen to verses 17 18 again. So... Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now the potential excuse is actually raised and responded to in verse 18, but before he gets to that, Paul very quickly in verse 17 summarizes what he's already said, actually, in verses 14 and 15. Some scholars uh, struggle with verse 17, feel like it's awkward or out of place. Well, I don't think it is, even though it is something of a repetition. I think there's a reason for it, and it's simply this. I think Paul puts it there because his original description of this sequence of events, in verses 14 to 15, uh, his description of that led him to pause and reflect in verse 16, on the sobering fact that despite this process, not everyone responds in faith and obedience to the gospel. And so having paused for a moment, he inserts this summary of verse 17 to recenter the discussion. 
and to restore the momentum as he continues moving forward to deal with possible excuses for Jewish unresponsive, uh, unresponsiveness. And so moving forward, the first potential excuse or question that Paul deals with is, again, have they not heard? Have they not heard? Which, looking at the verse just before, means have they not heard the word of Christ? Have they not heard the word about Christ? And Paul's response to this is, indeed they have. And then he goes on to quote from an Old Testament passage from Psalm 19, verse 4. Let me give you that passage in context, because it's a little surprising, this quotation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Here's the quote. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. When the passage says, their voice goes out through all the earth, what's it referring to? Who's there in the passage in Psalm 19? The answer is, in context, there is the heavens, the creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, etc. So what's going on here? What is, what is Paul saying? Well, let's look at the psalm just for a second. Psalm 19 is saying two things really clearly. In the first half, which is where this quote comes from, it talks about how God has clearly revealed himself through the created order, through the world, through the creation. And he's revealed himself to the entire world. That's one of the reasons why Paul says what he says in Romans 1 about nobody having an excuse before God because of what's said here in Psalm 19. And then after talking about God's revelation of himself through creation, Psalm 19 switches gears in the second half to talk about how God's revealed himself also by means of his word, his law, by special revelation, to use the language of theology. Now you would think that perhaps Paul, in supporting his assertion that the Jews have heard the word of Christ, you'd think he might have quoted from the second half of Psalm 19, not the first half. But he doesn't. Why is that? Well, as one writer has observed, the Jews already knew. Right? They already knew that they had the law. They already considered it a prized thing, a treasured possession. They had that part worked out. They're pretty good on that point. They had a pretty strong microscopic picture of the law in some ways. They were all about the details and had great scruples about that. But where they weren't so great was in the bigger picture. The movement and the flow of God's plan, the sweep of God's purposes, what the whole thing was pointing to and what it was moving them toward. If they had that bigger picture, they would have seen, among other things, that the word that God had given them was not intended to be their possession or prize. As Deffenbaugh puts it, it was intended to be their stewardship. Not their possession. I digress slightly there, but Paul's point here, I take it, is to remind his readers of God's clear and universal desire to reveal himself to his creation in general, which is why he quotes from the first part of the psalm. And in light of that truth, it would be ludicrous to think that the same God who's spoken so clearly to creation in general would somehow speak less clearly or not at all to his own people. 
And then we look at the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. This is what we see, isn't it? I mean, Jesus went all, all over the place, healing and performing miracles and preaching and teaching. And the news of what he did surely would have spread like wildfire. And then as people flocked to see him, what did they hear? They hear this man preaching from the Old Testament scriptures, quoting the prophets, pressing home God's truth at every turn. And then he sends out his disciples to do the exact same kinds of things. He sends out the 12, he sends out 70. So could the Jews claim that they hadn't heard that no messenger had been sent to them? Could they really legitimately claim that? No. Which leads then to the second potential excuse or objection that gets raised. Surely God sent messengers to the Jews, but did the Jews hear and understand the message they were receiving? Listen again to Paul's response to that in verses 19 to 20. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Without going into a lot of detail, what Paul is doing, basically he's pulling from the law with Moses and the prophets with Isaiah, which is a way of adding a sense of completeness to what he's trying to say here. But what Paul does here, he quotes from Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah 65. The Deuteronomy quote brings out the fact that God frequently made use of foreign nations pagan peoples to discipline, to rebuke, to provoke, and even instruct his people. The Isaiah quote is especially telling. Uh, one writer summarizes it this way. He says, the final words of Isaiah's prophecy deal with both sides of the coin as he speaks both of the belief of the Gentiles and the unbelief of the Jews. His prophecy precisely predicts that condition Paul has just described in Romans 9, 30 to 33. Those who did not seek God found him. Those who did not even ask for God found he was clearly revealed to them. The salvation of the Gentiles could hardly have been more clearly foretold. In effect then, what Paul is saying by means of these two quotations in response to this question whether or not the Jews understood the message they received is this. He's saying this, if these if the people who are not a people, who certainly have never been regarded as the people of God, who've been regarded as foolish and without understanding, who weren't even looking in the right place if they were looking at all, if those people got it and responded to the gospel, which is what the Gentiles were doing everywhere, then can it really be the case that the people with the law and the privileges and the understanding and the experience of God really don't understand, is that really what's going on here? Do you really want to go there? Or as Lig Duncan puts it, uh, if the D students are understanding these things, how can it be that the A students aren't? Indeed. Which leads Paul to quickly and succinctly state the real reason, humanly speaking, for the Jews' lack of responsiveness to the gospel. It's right there in verse 21, also a quote from Isaiah 65. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Why have the Jews not responded to the gospel? 
because they didn't want to. The issue for them at the core, at the very center, was not intellectual or cultural or historical or theological. It was not that they hadn't heard the message. It wasn't that they didn't understand the message. It was because they didn't want the message. It was a moral issue. It was about the will, the heart, what they wanted and what they didn't want. All day long I held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Uh, three things to think about, um, I think, to take away from this passage. Surely a lot more. Here's three I'm going to land on. The reason the Jews did not respond to Jesus was as much about their stubbornness and disobedience as it was the sovereignty of God. I hope you see the way that Paul pairs these things together. Romans 9 clearly sending the message about the role of God's sovereignty in the Jewish unresponsiveness. Romans 9.30 through 10 clearly sending the message about the responsibility that the Jews bore for their rejection of God. You've heard me say it before, but if the God of the universe looks at you and tells you that you are responsible for your choice, then you are, by definition, responsible. So you see these two things together, this uh, God's uh, sovereignty and human responsibility. And the reality is we're responsible. We're responsible. People responsible for how they, res they um, hear the gospel, how they receive it, or don't receive it. And so there's a gravity to this whole thing. And, and, and as we have opportunity to share the gospel, to talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ, please understand the gravity of what it is that we do. Uh, we're not just giving people a, a different worldview option. It doesn't really matter if they take it or don't take it. Um, it's okay. We should never, ever communicate the gospel in that sort of way that just says it's okay. It doesn't matter whether you receive this or not, accept this or not. It's consequence-free. We should never communicate it that way. We are responsible. There's a responsibility involved in hearing the gospel but not embracing it. The second thing I would just press home is just this truth that at the end of the day, it really is about the heart. I mean, uh, you know, other things matter. Um, God may use you as you talk to people about Christ. People do have real intellectual questions. They, real have, they have real struggles um, with Christianity. And we can talk to people about those things and help them think through those questions. But not everybody does. Not everybody has intellectual objections, but I would venture to say everybody has heart objections, heart issues about responding to the gospel. And I think we should never lose sight of that. At the end of the day, whatever other issues are there for people, for that person in front of you, there are heart issues involved. There are idolatries involved in their resistance. And we need to get this diagnosis right, because if you think it's just a head problem, then you're missing it. One writer gives this example of, uh, he asks this question, why is it that people reject the gospel? He says this, he says, if you answer that question wrongly, it could have disastrous effects on the church. 
He says, let me take you back two centuries. There was a very pious man who lived in Germany, and as he looked all around him, he saw the most intelligent people, the leaders of the culture, the cutting-edge educated class rejecting Christianity in droves. It concerned him greatly, and he said, what could be the problem? So he wrote a series of lectures called Lectures on Christianity to its Cultured Despisers. This man's name was Frederick Schleiermacher, and he decided that this was the problem. The Christianity was not sophisticated enough in the eyes of the leaders of the culture around him. It didn't seem to be up to date. It didn't seem to be answering the questions that they were asking. It didn't seem to be such a form of belief which was sufficient for modern educated people. So he attempted to update Christianity to make it more relevant and appealing to his peers. The problem was that in the process of updating it, he lost the gospel. He lost the gospel. You can't change the gospel without losing it. And the problem was that he, he did that, and he did it because he misdiagnosed the issue. The problem wasn't with the gospel. It didn't need updating. It didn't need to be made more relevant. There are hard issues involved. And if we miss that, if we forget that, then we're a world of hurt. People around us will hear the gospel, reject Christ in the gospel, and we, we have to remember the whole time is that the people that we're dealing with and talking to and pleading with and praying for and hoping for, uh, it's not like we're talking to people who have no religious motive whatsoever. Anytime we're talking to someone, we're talking to someone who's worshiping something. It's somewhere, someone in their heart and mind, someone in their life is an altar. There's a place or a variety of places, things that they worship, things that are of ultimate value to them, that are more important to them than anything else. And until they see that and turn away from that and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll be held captive by those realities, by those idolatries. And we, we should never lose sight of that fact, that the person standing in front of us is worshiping other things, and that means that when we share the gospel, we tell other people about the Lord Jesus, we need to be part of that process. You know, I think one of the things that, things that clearly comes through in verses 14 to 15 in chapter 10 is that God uses people. And we do need to open our mouths and speak and be heralds and, and bring the message of the gospel. But at the end of the day, we cannot, we cannot get to the heart. We cannot talk people into loving the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot intellectually bring about a conversion. And it means we've got to be praying. We've got to be opening our mouths and speaking. We've got to be praying and asking that the Lord will address the matters of people's hearts and open their eyes and ears to, to see and hear things that are, apart from his working they'll never see and hear. So I think uh, that's a, a take-home for us as well, that we, that we need to be about praying for these people. That not, only, not only we've talked before about opening our mouths and speaking and being bold and courageous, uh, to address people on these issues and to present the Lord Jesus Christ. But we cannot do it on our own. We cannot save or convert a single person. So we need, we need to be praying that God will work because uh, he must work if they're to be saved. I'd urge you to think about those things and reflect on these things. Please pray with me.
Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for just the fact that your apostle, our brother Paul, took the time to explore this whole issue of the Jews and their unresponsiveness. It raises lots of questions for us, Father. And I pray that you would help us to, to deal with these uh, admittedly heavy and hard and difficult truths. At the end of the day, Father, I do pray that, that uh, on the other side of our thinking through and wrestling through these truths, that we would get to the place where um, we are more motivated than ever to uh, pursue you, to love you, to honor you, um, to show and tell the gospel. Um, but then, Father, to be on our knees. Uh, give us a great compassion, Father, uh, to, see, uh, to see people come to you and know you, come to know you, to be grieved by the hardness of heart, to be grieved by the unresponsiveness that we see. And, uh, Father, please uh, use that to to. Put us on our knees and keep us on our knees. And would you be pleased to work through that um, to use our prayers and, and our lips and lives to draw people to yourself. Father, we look to you with confidence and hope and anticipation of the things that you're going to do, the ways that you're going to use us as part of your gospel mission. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. We're now going to take up an offering for those who want to support the work of this church or various ministries that we are supporting as a church.